Well, today we're back in our series called We Preach Christ. And last week we saw how the gospel came to Corinth through the Apostle Paul. We saw the human side of evangelism. But we recognize that it's not the full story on evangelism, according to the Bible. We also recognize that there is a divine side of preaching. Bringing people to Jesus, we see that people persuade, people speak, but God is actively working as well. God is always working behind the scenes and through means, through the means of people preaching Christ. And Paul explains and expands on this theme of his preaching in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2. So for the next two weeks, we're going to consider these texts and the invisible dynamics of preaching with special focus on the way the three-person God works in and through the word of the cross, the proclamation of the cross. We're going to see some of the ways God works to take us from not believing in Jesus one day to believing in Jesus the next day. We're going to discover how God himself actually persuades us to believe through preachers who are persuading us to believe. And we'll see that the most effective preacher of all time who ultimately calls and convinces us to believe in Jesus is actually God himself. He calls, he saves, and he who calls us and saves us does so through the word of the cross. We're also going to find that the God who acts through the word of the cross, through the preaching of the gospel, in us who believes, continues to act in us, even transforming our way of living and thinking and being in this world. While the word of the cross, which is in this passage Paul's shorthand for the gospel, the word of the cross is where Christ was sacrificed and crucified. For believers, the word of the cross is much more as well. It's also where we find ourselves. It's where we find God. It's where we... Uh, are, are able to become more sane, more human. It's where our true identity as a person and as a child of God is remade in and through the power of God. It's where we face our sin and come, to face, come face to face with our Savior. Because at the cross of Christ, God reveals himself to us who believe. In and through the cross, we're remade and reshaped by the power of God. By the power of Christ. So the word or the message or the proclamation of the cross changes everything for believers, doesn't it? And what's more, the God who transformed us through the power of the cross when we believed is still transforming us through the power of the cross as we believe. The God who persuaded us to believe and think differently about Jesus is still working in us to think differently about him, the world, and everything in it. Because when we receive the gospel, we receive the Holy Spirit who comes to live in our hearts, right? He gives us new hearts, but he also gives us new minds. As Paul says in chapter 2, which we'll look at next week, we believers actually have the mind of Christ. And as such, we have a whole new way of thinking, of seeing, of believing, of living and being in this world. 
As such, we have a whole new way of thinking and seeing our ethics, our desires, our dispositions, and our delights have been reorganized and reordered by the power of Christ crucified. Since we Christians have the spirit of Christ and have the mind of Christ, that means we have a whole new way of operating in this life. And this week we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 1, verses 18 to 31, to see how the word of the cross redefines a believer's views on the world and everything in it. The word of the cross redefines a believer's views on the world and everything in it. But first, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we want to thank you for the privilege we have to dig into your word now and to find out what your word says about us, about your son, about the cross. And we pray that your spirit would open our eyes and open our hearts to believe and to see the wonderful, glorious things in your word. Teach us today, we pray, as we humbly become students of your word, learning what it's like to follow Jesus and learn from him and learn from his word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So as we start, let's consider why Paul is writing this letter to that church in Corinth. If you were to look back at 1 Corinthians 1, up to verses 11 to 13, you see that there were divisions within this church. There were bickering and fighting matches happening based on which preacher you followed. Uh, These believers in Corinth, uh, they were bickering about their favorite preachers and whose style was most powerful. Some said they follow Paul, or some said they follow Apollos. Others said, I follow Cephas. Others said, I follow Jesus. They were name-dropping these big preachers and personalities, priding themselves in who they were connected to. You know, I'm on Paul's team. Who's with Paul? And the problem is that their divisions come from a worldly mindset obsessed with status, success, and popularity, and personalities. Now, let's not be too hard on the Corinthians. They're like us. Like us, these believers were tempted to put their confidence in their favorite people and their accomplishments instead of Jesus. Have you ever done that? You can relate. And it baffles Paul, though, that they're starting to create little teams of people around certain preachers. And he says to them, was Paul crucified for you? Don't you get it? You think you're important because you see yourselves inside the inner circle of strong personalities, but don't you realize Jesus was crucified for you? They were arrogantly boasting about their favorite person, much like some today will boast about their favorite team, their favorite musician or celebrity, or what have you. This is the way of the world, and this was the way of life and the world in Corinth. To brag about your connections and your associations was the way to show others how truly important you were. Like, I'm on, that, I'm on their team. Consider how important I am. But the cross was to actually change their way of thinking on these matters of division as well. Today we'll see that Paul actually takes that note of division and says, okay, you want to talk about division? Let me tell you about the only division and the only association and connection that really matters in this life, in this world. It's the division that the cross creates between people headed for hell and for people headed for heaven. The cross creates a division between those who believe in Jesus and those who don't believe in Jesus. 
those who are perishing and those who are being saved. This is the only division and connection that truly matters. Are you with Jesus or are you, in, are, are you not? The cross creates a division through all humanity between those who are connected to Christ by faith and those who aren't. So that's the context, and that's the context of our text that we're going to look at today. The first thing we see in verse 18 is that the word of the cross redefines our views on power and knowledge. Look at verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Here's the great contrast between how people perceive the cross. Believers see the cross as the power of God for salvation. And unbelievers evaluate the cross as foolish. They're looking at the same thing, and they're making completely different evaluations. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, uh, how, how is it so, and why is it so, that unbelievers evaluate the cross as such? Well, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, that's the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Uh, those who don't believe in Christ can't see spiritual truths because they aren't spiritual people, meaning they don't have the Holy Spirit. They're physically alive, but they're dead spiritually. And as such, they cannot understand or discern the deep things of God, nor the word of the cross. In the cross, humanity either perceives foolishness or wisdom, power or weakness. What do you see when you consider the cross? They say beauty is in the eye of the beholder, right? Meaning people have different standards of beauty. And I think this is true when it comes to the beauty of the cross. The world doesn't behold the beauty of Christ and his cross. Not because Jesus isn't truly beautiful, which he indeed is, but because the world is blind to his beauty. They cannot see his beauty in their unbelief unless he removes the veil from their eyes and reveals himself through the cross. The world sees the cross as foolishness. They don't perceive the beauty and the power of God. They don't see the plan of salvation nor their need of salvation. But for us who believe, we look at the cross and we see Jesus, our Savior, and he is altogether lovely, isn't it? Isn't he? Through the gospel, we're saved to be different. And through the gospel, we even see differently. And the world sees us treasuring Jesus and says, what's the big deal? What's up with them? They think it's foolishness, even ridiculous. They look at us who believe and say, are you crazy? And we respond by saying, no, Jesus has actually made us sane in a world gone mad. He's turned us upright in a world that's upside down. So Christianity is an acquired taste, spiritually speaking. The cross, which was once distasteful to us, has become a delight to us who believe. Because the Spirit opened our eyes, our ears, our heart, and our mind to see, to delight in the cross of Christ. Now, we believers, we love the cross. When we didn't believe, we couldn't appreciate nor appro appropriate its life-giving 
life-saving benefits. We needed God to open our eyes to see and to behold the beauty that's in the cross of Christ, to behold Christ for who he truly is, our life and our salvation, the very power of God. The cross is good for us. The cross is good for you. Do you believe that? What do you see in the cross? What do you believe about the cross? Do you see God's power or folly? Salvation or something else? Ask yourself, what does Jesus and his cross really mean to me? Let's continue as we look at verse 19. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Now, on to the topic of acquiring wisdom and knowledge. Paul now quotes from Isaiah 29, 14, stating that God himself will actually destroy and thwart the wisdom and discernment of those who think they're wise in this world. In that verse, God even says he has hidden the discernment of the so-called discerning from them. Remarkable. This can and will be said of the so-called wisdom of the so-called wise of the world who reject God's revelation in the cross. God will see to it that they're exposed for what they truly are. They brag about how much they know, but God exposes them as those who are actually foolish. This is a running theme in Scripture. God brings down the self-promoting proud and lifts up the humble. Look at verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? So they say wisdom, or sorry, they say knowledge is power, right? Meaning if you have a special knowledge of a certain expertise or skill, you can open doors for yourself with that knowledge. This seems to be the way the world thinks today, and it seems to be the way the world was thinking in Paul's day. But Paul says the way the world pursues knowledge and power fails to get to know God. They do not get the knowledge of God in his power, in all their pursuit of knowledge and power. God actually remains unknown, even hidden to them in a saving way, to some of the people that we might expect to know it all. Yet in their self-professed wisdom, they're actually missing what matters most, knowing the God who is truly wise. The most distinguished Greek person, the so-called wise of that age, who would have studied argumentation and philosophy, and the most distinguished Jewish people of that day, the scribe who studied the law, they even have limited knowledge. The educated elites, the academics, are actually ignorant of the things of God. And Paul tells these believers that it's actually God's design that the church is not a group of elites. Rather, the church was a people who the elites found ridiculous, even foolish. Because us believers, we look at the cross and we see wisdom and we see the power of God in a Savior who was crucified. And the worldly wise and religious wise look at us they don't believe in the cross, and they say, how can wisdom and power be found in anyone, anyone who was crucified? Now, this might miss us, because we're not in the first century. 
but to be crucified in the first century. To hear the words crucified in the first century was to refer to the most shameful, brutal, and cruel death. In that day, it was even impolite to speak of the cross or crucifixions in company. It was a sign of Rome's power and brutality. If you crossed the Romans, to the cross you'd go. And your life would end with public shaming as you died slowly. And here's a reversal we may not have expected to hear. God shows the so-called wise people of the world that the way they're pursuing wisdom is actually foolish. Because God ordained that his wisdom would be displayed and revealed and found in the cross of Christ. In a crucified Savior. That old brutal sign of death in the Roman world would be transformed into a new sign of love, wisdom, and power for everyone who believes. What is the cross of Christ to you? What is the cross of Christ? It was a place where Jesus faced death, died for our sin, took his life back, and rose again. Defeating the power of death, leaving an unmistakable mark on history that says, I beat the powers of Satan and Rome through love. The cross is matchless wisdom and power if you have ears to hear. So what do you hear? Look at verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Have you ever wondered why those who seem to know it all or even brag as though they do are so clueless when it comes to knowing God? How some of the world's sharpest minds can miss knowing Jesus. Paul says that the unbelieving world's ways of finding knowledge actually leaves them in the dark with God. They're seeking to find God without actually submitting to his ways of revealing himself. They tried to find God through their own efforts and learning, whether the Greeks did it by philosophical thought or the Jewish people did it by religious works and accomplishments. Both paths failed to find God. And those who we may have thought would get it missed it altogether. The people with lots of knowledge turned out to be ignorant of the most important thing in the world, knowing God. Now, this verse talks about the world of unbelievers as those who did not know God through wisdom. You see that in verse 21. That is, they sought knowledge through human activities and efforts like learning and doing, but they didn't get the knowledge of God. Now, that word know is the word gnosko, which is not only an informational knowledge, but a relational knowledge. It doesn't just mean knowing facts about God. It actually refers also to relationally, personally knowing someone. Knowing God is a personal, relational matter. Now here the Bible says that unbelievers don't know God. Because of their sin and unbelief, unbelievers are covenant breakers when it comes to the relationship with God. And as such, their relationship with God is broken. Right? Right. And yet... There's a riddle here, because Paul also says in Romans chapter 1, verse 21, using the same word 
that even unbelievers in the world knew God. And yet they suppressed or ignored him, refusing to honor and give thanks to him. So do unbelievers know God or not? Do they have a relationship with God or not? The answer is yes and no. As we've already seen, they've broken their relationship with God because they're covenant breakers in sin and unbelief. And we're going to try to find the answers to this riddle by considering this question. How do we come to know what we know about God? Romans 1 tells us that even unbelievers knew God, that is, they actually had a relationship with him, yet they ignored him. And the relationship that unbelievers have with God is not a relationship based on grace and faith. It's a relationship based on unbelief and hostility. Okay? So there is a relationship between God and unbelievers. They knew God. That's relational language. But in their stubborn unbelief, they stiff-armed him. And they ignore him. They suppress the truth about him. They don't want God. But they have a relationship with him, one of animosity and hostility. So the unbeliever actually knows God as their enemy. They are rebels who are hostile towards him and his ways. They know God as their creator, and they are relationally at odds with him because they are covenant breakers. But here's what God does in his wisdom. He doesn't wait for humanity to get it together and find their way back to him. Rather, he makes a way to humanity by revealing himself to those who knew him in a relationship of hostility to get to know him in a relationship of love. They can know him as their father through Jesus his son. Remember eternal life as Jesus defines it. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Same word, gnosko. God was pleased to reveal himself through a so-called foolish thing, the cross, and bring unbelievers into a relationship with himself based on grace. Based on the one who kept covenant with God and shed his blood for covenant breakers like us. So he reveals himself to rebels through a cross. Here's an ironic twist on knowledge. By God's design, human wisdom did not lead people to a saving knowledge and relationship with God. They had a relationship of hostility. But now, in Christ, a saving relationship with God can be found today. And how do we know God in this way? That knowledge must be revealed to us from outside of us. It's found through the word that the world finds foolish, the word of the cross. It's found in the preaching of Christ crucified. God reveals the way to himself in the cross and shows all the other ways of finding knowledge to lack wisdom. And the mystery of God's works is that he has actually hidden himself to some people who we thought were wise by worldly standards. And he has revealed himself to others who we thought were fools according to the world's standards. 
Those who obtained the knowledge of God as their Savior got this knowledge not by their own doing or their own efforts, but by God's own action in revealing himself. In other words, you and I only know God as our Savior in a saving relationship now because he chose to reveal himself to us. Listen to theologian Herman Bovink. He says, we cannot credit a knowledge of God to ourselves, to our own discovery, investigation, or reflection. If it were not given us by an act of free and unobliged favor, there would be no possibility that we could ever achieve it by an exertion of our own efforts. Knowledge of God is possible, therefore, only on the basis of a revelation from God's side. A knowledge of God is available to man only when, and insofar as, God freely chooses to reveal himself. So the gospel divides the world, doesn't it? Between those who believe and those who don't. And what's amazing is that the people of the world that should be in the know are actually in the dark when it comes to knowing God. Because they sought to find God in their own way, by accumulating information, not by accepting his revelation. And knowing God doesn't come to humans from inside of them. We are helpless to find God if God doesn't find us and disclose himself to us. God reveals true, his true wisdom to us, and it's found outside of us, and it's found not in impressive speeches from impressive speakers, but in a crucified Savior. When simple preachers get up and preach the word of the cross, God in wisdom reveals himself to believers whom he calls and saves. This means that if he revealed himself to you, and if he reveals himself to you, you know him in the saving sense. Your relationship with him is no longer based on hostility and animosity. If he reveals himself to us as Savior through the person, person and work of Christ, we are in a relationship based on love and grace. Don't believe me? Listen to Jesus in Matthew 11. He says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. When God reveals himself to us, he saves us. And we come to know him in a different way. Not as rebels anymore, but as children. Children of the living God. Our relationship changes from one marked by hostility to one marked by love. And we don't come to know him through religious achievements or philosophical thought and argument, but through his revelation in Christ through the cross. Again, Bob Inc. for good measure. As for this knowledge of the one true God, we like children must let Christ give it to us. It is nowhere to be found outside of him, neither in schools of learning nor among philosophers of distinction. We did not know God and took no interest in a knowledge of his ways, but Christ caused us to know the Father. Amen? Now, does this mean that because we're Christians and we know God in this saving way, we have the right to look down at unbelievers like they know nothing? 
Are we supposed to mock the sophisticated professors and the brilliant minds of our day who cannot appreciate Jesus and him crucified? I hope you know the answer is no. We've only got knowledge of Christ because God chose to reveal himself to us, right? If he did not take the initiative to do so, we'd be just like them, blind, lost, in the dark, to the things of God. So I think this should promote a humility that says, thank you, Lord, for revealing yourself to me. Now look at verses 22 to 24. More on this seeking knowledge, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. So the Jewish people of the day demanded signs from Jesus to be convinced of his claims. Uh, Like some today do, they may have said, I'll believe in Jesus if he gives me a sign. Just give me a sign, Jesus, I'll believe. And the Greek people of the day sought to be convinced according to plausible philosophical arguments. Like some today, maybe in the schools of science and mathematics, they may say, I'll believe in Jesus when you can prove it to me from facts, scientific facts, empirical evidence. Yet God did not pander to these unbelieving requests. God doesn't give them signs and wisdom in the way they request it. God comes down and reveals himself through his son in the word of the cross. That's it. Which is a stumbling block, an offensive and distasteful message to Jews who wanted signs. And a bunch of apparent foolishness to Gentiles who wanted wisdom. But even still, the same message of the crucified one was effective in bringing some out from the Jewish and some out from the Gentile world. God calls some of them through the cross, and those who were formerly unbelieving Jews and Greeks now believe and see with new eyes. Now they see that Christ is indeed the power and wisdom of God. Though many reject Jesus, the God who calls his people will save the people he calls. They will come out from the darkness into his light. Now this call that's mentioned here is not the same as the calling we might refer to when we speak of a call to ministry or a call to work in a certain sector. The calling we see here in verse 26, the calling from verse 24 and 26, is the call to salvation, also known as effective or effectual calling. Those who are called by God through the gospel to see actually believe. Those who are called by God through the gospel to be his people cannot successfully ignore his call. This calling is a calling to salvation through the cross. So those who are called in this sense, in this text, in this context, those who are called believe and those who believe are saved and those who are saved come to see Jesus as God's power and wisdom. Look at verse 25. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than than men. So here's a show of God's power and wisdom that may actually surprise us. God proves to be wiser and stronger than humans through what the unbelieving world of humans perceive as foolishness and weakness. That is the cross. He does through the cross... What no human could do, no religious Jew through religious duties, nor brilliant Greek through philosophical 
uh, uh, thought could do what God did through the cross. And what is that? He saves sinners. There it is. His power is displayed in saving sinners, and no human can save themselves. Amen? So through that powerful act of the cross, God proves to be wiser and stronger than any human strength or achievement. Using creative language, we can say that his foolishness is wiser than man's wisdom, and his weakness is stronger than man's strength and might. Now ask yourself, in light of all these words, what do I see in the cross now? Do you see your Savior? Have you come believing in him, his life, his death, his resurrection as the power of God for your salvation and the wisdom of God? What is Christ to you right now, friend? Do you see him as lovely, as beautiful, as gracious? If so, that's because God has called you to himself. And on that note, let's continue to see how the word of the cross redefines our views on status and people. Look at verse 26 to 27. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Now, I just want to read from another paraphrase of this passage, and it just gives a little different take on it, I hope, which is helpful for us all. It says of these verses, uh, Think about the circumstances of your call, brothers and sisters, that not many of you were intellectuals, as the world counts cleverness. Not many held influence. Not many were born to high status. But the foolish things of the world God chose in order to shame the clever. And the weak things of the world God chose to shame positions of strength. And the insignificant of the world and the despised God chose, yes, the nothings to bring to nothing the somethings. What a reversal. These verses return to the theme of calling as we saw in verse 24. And now Paul is calling the church to look around. And we should look around as well. Look around and consider who it is that God called out of the world by the cross. Look at yourselves, church. Those who God called out of the world into the church. It's not the big names. It's not the famous people that God has called to himself. Rather, it's the opposite. It wasn't the educated, the influential, the privileged, the connected, and the powerful that God called to himself, right? It is the nobodies. The nobodies who became somebodies in the church because God made it so. Not by our own doing, but by God's calling and choosing us for himself out of the world. Speaking of this verse, Eric Redmond says, if salvation were based on their intellectual status, social power status, or pedigrees of nobility, few Corinthians would have qualified for salvation. And this reminds us of what 1 Peter 2 says. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. God chose those who were weak and foolish in the world's eyes to shame the wise. God turned the tables on the proud, the popular, and the powerful in the world. Instead of choosing them to be his people, and maybe as sometimes we think, 
use their platform to sway the world towards Christ? No, God doesn't do that. God does the opposite. He chooses to use the weak things of the world, the foolish things of the world, the lowly and non-entities of the world to showcase his power and wisdom. Because God doesn't need anyone to make his work flourish in the world. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. God's called and chosen people will be saved through the word of the cross. That's where God's power is found. Which should make us all humble and happy as we consider our own calling. Brothers and sisters, we're really not that much. But God has called us to himself, praise God. Remembering again that salvation isn't a reward for our performance. It's based entirely on God's freedom to call and choose and show mercy to whoever he chooses to show mercy to. Chris Watkins says this so well. He says, when it comes to the gospel, the criterion for being on the right side is mercy, not performance. Those who are saved by grace are not those who are smarter than others, more rational than others, better behaved than others, kinder or humbler or more generous than others, or better by any other criterion of performance whatsoever. Those who are saved by grace are saved despite their performance, not because of it. So brothers and sisters... As you consider yourself, as you consider your own calling to salvation, who you are before God, as you consider the church, the community of those who God has called, all of us who are called to Jesus and believed, consider who we were and who we are without Christ. Anything to brag about? No. And consider who we were before Christ. Anything to brag about? No. It is God who called us to himself. That's what we can boast about. That's what we can praise God about. And he humbled us, and he humbles us as we remember our call. So be humble that God saved you, brother and sister. Recognize again that salvation is by grace, not performance, not pedigree, not status, not power. We didn't earn this gift. It was given to us. We are those whom God called and chose, which I think should fill us with joy and flatten our egos. We're saved not because we're great, but because God is gracious, wise, and merciful, because he's powerful. We're saved because he called and chose us to be. Now let's look at the last few verses where we see how the word of the cross redefines our views on appearances and achievements. Look at verse 28. God chose what is lowly and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So God's ways and wisdom are not what we would expect, are they? He chooses what the world despises and what the world thinks is nothing to be something, so that those who appear to be important and achieve great rewards in this world will be brought to nothing in God's evaluation. Which means nobody gets saved and proclaims, I've done it! I'm so amazing! 
self-congratulations and bragging and strutting around and boasting about our performances has no place in the church, friends. It's worldly, backwards, upside-down thinking. What do you have that you did not receive, as Paul will say in chapter 4? God will see to it that there is no boasting about ourselves in his presence. As we've seen, finding God, knowing God rightly, isn't even possible unless he reveals himself to us. Which means we totally need and depend on God to act in order to save us. Which is another way of saying, the reason you're saved is because God saved you. And this should lead us to praise him. It's only because of God's choosing and calling that we are in Christ Jesus. God chose us to be in Christ before we believed in Christ. And as we remember from last week, he's referring to the church in Corinth, which was from a city that we might call the sin city of its day. It was also the place where the Lord told Paul to go on speaking because he had many in this city who are my people. And look at how he saved his people in Corinth, verses 30 to 31. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So God saved us believers by calling us, his people, out of the world and into Christ. We were set free from our bonds to sin to be bound to Jesus by grace. We have a new status now. And those who belong to him in a relationship of love are those who are grateful for his grace. We boast of what he has done, not of what we've done. As Anthony Thistleton says, here Paul redefines what real wisdom consists in, namely Jesus Christ, as exhibited and made effective in God's own action in Christ on the cross as against the obsession with status-seeking and success at Corinth, wisdom is redefined and explicated as receiving the gifts of righteousness, sanctification, and redemption freely bestowed through Christ and derivative from him. So instead of seeking to lift ourselves up because of our knowledge, our achievements, or our associations with important people, God shows us that the Christian through being humbled at the cross, is lifted up by God himself. There's no need to brag about ourselves as important. God has put us in Christ Jesus. God himself is our confidence who lifts us up, lifts our status, and lifts our heads so that we ought not to be ashamed. If we would be wise, we'll boast not of our status or our connection to important people nor about power and knowledge or achievements or appearances, we'll boast of Christ and our connection to him. What God has done in us through Christ. Because of God's work in me, by Christ, I am truly wise according to God. The world has misunderstood what wisdom is. True wisdom, according to God here, means I'm redeemed, sanctified, and righteous by virtue of my union with Jesus. And this truly elevates my heart and mind for boasting about what matters most in life. Not me, but the Lord my God. Not my appearance, but the Lord my God and what he has done. In verse 31, Paul alludes to Jeremiah 9, which is a rich passage, and it says this. Thus says the Lord, 
Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So friend, as we close, has Christ become your wisdom, your righteousness, your sanctification, your redemption? Is he redeemed? Is he your redeemer? If so, you know that the only person you should boast about is about the Lord Jesus, who is your salvation and your God. Let's pray.